This is Beyond the Farm Gate, a show where we shine a light on great Australian stories in agriculture. On the show, you'll hear from farmers who've survived challenges like fire, flood and drought, farmers who run innovative and unique agribusinesses, and farmers who are balancing work and family in rural Australia. You'll be inspired hearing their stories and pick up some insights along the way. I'm your host, Annie Herbert. Alongside me, Matt Hour. Today we're chatting with Tim Johnston. Tim and his family own Wiradjuri Coopworth Stud, located in Brit Brit in Western Victoria. Wiradjuri hasn't always been a stud, but Tim's open approach to change and keen interest in animal genetics saw him make the switch from wool and find his niche. In this episode, you'll hear how Tim innovated his way through the wool market crash of the 90s, how he uses data to better manage the connection between pasture and animal, and how he's embraced new opportunities in the face of COVID-19. Let's jump in. Can you tell us a little bit about your farm and, and maybe where it's located? Wiradjuri is located at Gringy, which is between Coleraine and Balmoral, just northwest of Hamilton in Victoria. We operate a self-replacing Coopworth breeding program in conjunction with our um, Coopworth and South Suffolk studs. Is there a backstory to to you getting started on the farm? or? In 1991, Amelia and I came back to the property following the sudden death of my father. We just both graduated from university and came home and got married and took on the farm in that time when um, the wool market had just crashed and quite a period of uncertainty, both personally from a family's point of view and an industry point of view. So that was in 1991. Tim, you mentioned that you came back from university. What was you know, your decision-making process around heading off to uni and undertaking study versus just remaining on the farm and learning that way? Well, I was always very keen on agriculture and and the farm, so I was definitely going to come back to the property at some stage. And and I was encouraged by my family to pursue um, qualifications in in agriculture at the highest level I could do. So the opportunity to go up to um, University of New England in Armidale, North New South Wales, arose and, and it was great. It gave me the time to be away from local district and as a young person you've got to get out and about and that gave me that opportunity and and that, that rural science course at the time you know, had, had lots of practical and commercial application while still being a ag science degree. You know, it's having that different perspective and, and learning about agriculture perhaps in a different setting to what you were used to. You came back as you said in the 90s and mentioned the wool crash. Are you able to talk us through for you and your family personally, what were some of the challenges that you were facing as part of the crash? Well, it was a very difficult time because the whole commodity support that the industry had been used to with the reserve price scheme and and the political and debate that had been going on, it was a very negative thing to be involved in wool production in those days. We'd had to downsize a lot of our flocks and property values had reclined significantly. So it was really a situation where for us, it was through the support of my family, but to give us the opportunity to make a go of it and 
and we, we entered it with a fair bit of enthusiasm, uh, taking the attitude that, yes, things will be better and we want to be better positioned to make the most of it in the future. And so, so we embraced the opportunity at the time and we just found over the, those years of the 1990s, we had a couple of pretty ordinary seasons as well. The wool job just wasn't going to take us where we wanted to be in terms of our business plans and our sort of life goals. So we're always prepared to look for better enterprises and better ways to run our farm. The midfield group down at Warnable were launching their um, Frisian bull beef program, which we embraced, and that really put a focus on pasture production and good agronomy, and and that got us through that, that 1990 phase. And the legacy of that was that we did prime the property up with good soil fertility and, and a good pasture base and, and an understanding of growing grass and utilising pasture. And so that was a good thing for us. Um, in the 2000s, we couldn't sustain our bull beef program because it required a reticulated water system and, and cell grazing. And so we just had to phase that out. And over the rest of that decade, we transitioned into a prime lamb enterprise, which was a good supplement for the um, pasture agronomic concept that we'd taken on to in, in running our farm. So that, that led us into the prime lamb business. I think it's really important to acknowledge that you you saw the opportunity, even though it was a really difficult time. So what did that actually look like moving from wool-based production to the prime lambs? What, you know, practically, what did that take to make that change? Hmm. Oh, it, was, it was quite a decision because basically I was giving up or trans, transitioning from what we did have a, a quite a renowned commercial wool flock that my father had been part of. So we purchased some stud Coopworth ewes in 2005, which was the beginning of the Coopworth stud. Previously, on one of our other properties, we had experience with some Coopworth ewes and we were impressed by them. So so that enabled us basically to breed our own rams and, and over a generation or so convert the Merino flock to, to a Coopworth flock. So it didn't take very long in, in that way. And our focus then became producing lambs most efficiently as we could using our pasture system. I really like your your attitude to to change, Tim. I think that's probably something that we've picked up on over this story, sort of coming through the, the 90s and being a, a traditional uh, wool producer. And there's a hell of a lot of genetics that sort of sit behind that, actually making the call to, to have a go at cattle and then into lamb. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the, the breed Coopworths and, and why you actually chose them? Yeah, so the Coopworth impressed and interested me. Going back to my studies where I did do majors in quantitative genetics, so lamb plan essentially, and um, I did my honours thesis in um, artificial breeding. So, so those early interests were a part of what you could employ with the Coopworth stud program because the Coopworth breed is an objective measured breed originating from a border Leicester and Romney and from Lincoln University in New Zealand. So it's a performance recording in a quantitative way that is the basis of the breed. So key production traits of numbers lambs weaned and and growth rates and carcass characteristics are the you know, core elements of, of the objective measurement in the Coopworth breed. And subsequently, we were able to import quite a lot of semen from elite rams from New Zealand, which so that period over the last pretty much 12 years we did that, improved the status of our of our flock. 
um, genetically, and it's linked across all other studs who operate similar programs. So you, you can compare and rank and identify those sheep that have superior merit and then reproduce them very efficiently through the artificial breeding programs. So so that's that's what brought, brought my interest to that, yeah. So there's a hell of a lot of data that sort of sits behind that breed, I suppose. So it gives you a bit of a point of difference, doesn't it, when it comes to, to sheep? Is Was that a big decision to um, go down the stud path being that point of difference and actually being able to to sort of sell something other than just a, a, a run-of-the-mill sheep, I suppose? Yeah. Well, when you're farming, it's initially you do it for your reasons that you like the farm, but then you have the realities of the business and the seasons and things as well. So so for me, I didn't want it just to produce a commodity in, in, in lambs. It was the interest in breeding that was why I wanted to be a farmer. So that's why the stud breeding was something that you know, really motivated me and, and gets me going. So having that element of the farm production, that bit of differentiation and over the commodity of the lambs makes it fulfilling you know, been being farming and then over the time we've been doing it for 15 years now my key clients are people who have been with me all that way and they're pretty much your friends and people in the in the district so it's, it's good to feel that we're breeding something that's been appreciated by by others and and adds to their business and it's a big part of their business as well so so it makes it worthwhile getting up and weighing those lambs on a cold wet day when when you wonder whether anybody really really <laughs> minds, but but there's obviously you know, there is there's people do value it for what we're doing, so it's good. That sort of pride in in what you're doing and and uh, and really being proud of it is that something that that you think every person that goes into a stud might have, or is it is it something that's sort of unique along the way when you actually find that niche and and you're really motivated by what you do? I'd expect anyone who goes into stud breeding or any animal breeding. It's their passion and their interest in in animals and and breeding and performance that gets anyone going. Because if you don't have that to begin with, you're not, you're not going to be successful at it. So I'd suggest anyone who breeds breeds stock would would have that level of passion and interest um, to take it to the next step. Probably test your resolve a bit more, and just your personal goals might be different. But sheep breeders and livestock breeders would have a very common element of um, dedication to their animals, that's for sure, yeah. Yeah. And, Tim, you mentioned that, you know, your clients and the people you work with are a really large part of what you do, but another really large part is the auction side of things. And 2020, it's been a tough year for everyone. What adjustments have you had to make in order to comply with the changing auction format? Yes, well, it's just been such an evolving thing, as we're all aware, Uh so we had to make the call back in August to what we were going to do for our sale and just to be in have things booked in and you've got to get your advertising organised and and create some certainty to the clients to what you're what we're going to be doing. So at that time we thought our only option was to do the online sale, restrictions of people coming to your property. So so set the process underway but then as things evolved we sort of began to realize that we could actually hold a physical sale which we wanted to do um, because it does create a lot more atmosphere and 
and it's an interactive process. So to just to blatantly just have it online might have been problematic. So once all booked in, we we were pretty much preparing for two selling systems in a way: the online selling system, and then the physical system. Given that they then work at, were to be interfaced, but we still had to do the videos and and get the data uploaded to Auctions Plus and prepare for that, as well as physically prepare our sale you know, to, to run through the shed. So we held an open day a week before, which gave people an opportunity to come and inspect the rams in a more casual way by appointment. When it came to the sale day, you know, quite a few of those people still then came to the sale, but they, they were able to come later, so they didn't have to then go back through all the sheep and participate in the sale. And a couple of guys were, um, were able to operate mainly just because of their own logistical situation um, on auction, Auctions Plus. So so it still was utilised that way. So we had two clients operated, and they bought about 20 rands between them. Yep. The data that we've noticed is that they there was 50 rams out of the 75 that were actually um, bidded on during the sale for Auctions Plus. Mm-hmm. So, so they had a presence in the room, and, and it created a bit of third element having auctions plus mm. calling out from the back of the shed and so it did help with the atmosphere of the room and it was worthwhile and it did offer you know, something to our sale that will be useful going forward as we move into the new normal but you know something that looks a little bit more like it did pre-covid is continuing with auctions plus and having you know the two systems we continue with that or just go back to how you'd done it previously? Well, you need to evaluate it. It's relatively expensive, um, especially with the interface because it requires technician to be on, on property at the sale to relay the sale through to, to Auctions Plus Centre. But the two buyers that were participating, that they really appreciated it because one was a professional bloke and he was able to carry on what he was doing and the other guy lived some distance away so so it served them well it gets the videos and the photos of the sheep up online prior to the sale a week or so prior to the sale so you just don't know who who's looked at those prior to coming to the sale and the additional links of pedigree and data back through sheep genetics via the auctions plus site was was also good so people could link on the lots and get depth about the, the data behind and the breeding behind each ram. So so it does offer a lot. Look, clearly we're, we're moving into a digital world and technical world and people are busy and people are looking to technology to um, do their transactions and things with. So I'd imagine that's something that we'll continue with. Yeah. Yeah, great. And in what other ways... Have you utilised technology, whether it be social media or other forms of digital technology, to enhance your offering and, you know, enhance the presence and the promotion of the stud? Well, we do do social media. I don't have a website as such, so so I do rely on my Facebook stud page, which I purely use for stud information as a, as a notice board. That's got the timeline of information, so people can access that and scroll through and get a bit of background and history of highlights of the, the stud or things that we've been involved with. I don't use it as a gallery of every sunny day that we have on the farm. <laughs> putting putting the ads up as the sale 
as we approach sale time and a little bit of build up prior to sale and pretty much finish with a sale result <laughs> that summarises it all and and then I'd leave it alone for a while. So yeah, it's just hard to know. I think um, most of my clients would would be would have liked the page and probably see the see the posts from, come through. There's a lots of people who who hook onto it, and you, you never know who they are, or where they're from, or what their what their motives are. It's obviously necessary that you have some online presence, and that's that's the way we do it. Tim, you you're really progressive in the way you think. Like I, I've just picked it up on listening here now, and there's an element of of data and enjoying data, but there's also that marketing mindset that I think you you bring to the table, which is sort of a, a really good combination, I suppose, for something like a stud. Would you agree with that? Yes. Well, I am interested in marketing. That That is something that is, has interested me. You've got to be clear about what your goals are. I've sort of always had the approach that what we do, because we're backed by our own commercial operation, that what we're selling is what's working for us. I'm not just breeding to reproduce or meet a particular market. I'm just pretty much hanging our own commercial production that works for us, so it might interest other people. <laughs> but no, it has been interesting. And the data is a big element of it because we're trying to maintain a specific um, phenotype in our sheep because the Coopworth breed is an open breed in itself, but it does have breed guidelines, which distracts it a bit from being a composite breed, as it's sort of become generally known now. So we are trying to maintain a, a, a maternal phenotype that's I think is becoming characteristic of the stud. So when you look at the rams in the shed, they, they all look the same, but you need the data and the objective measurement, basically the specs under the bonnet, to determine the superior animals that are going to meet your production goals back in your own flock. So so that's why the data is important. And we don't measure absolutely everything because it's you know, I'm, I'm it. I'm a single man operation with support from my family. But we do measure all the key commercial traits and, and production traits, which it's about, yeah, so you can see the, the wood for the trees and and be focused on what gives you a commercial outcome that you're, that you're after. You're doing what you do for yourself. I think that adds a lot of authenticity to what you do, and I imagine that comes off on, onto your clients and, and their interest in, in actually buying something off you that, that you're really passionate about and that serves sort of your purpose on your commercial farm and that they can sort of tap into that, I suppose. I was interested in, in data fields uh, particularly when you're selling an animal and I think I counted on on one of your Facebook posts says there's about 25 data fields that were available to to buyers who were coming up and, and interested interested in the animals are they all are all buyers interested in a similar set of traits or do they sort of mix and match a bit yeah you get the range and I think over time the buyers are coming to appreciate the strength of the data and what's important because they are commercial traits and they do they do play out in the paddock. So now being a maternal breed, clearly fertility would be the main trait people are interested in. And then they want, of course, your, your weight, then we also measure for carcass. So it depends where the clients are coming from. If they're, if they're doing a breed conversion, say from merinos or just the fact that they've moved to a Coopworth 
the breed effect's going to give them the biggest change in the first instance. But those that are committed to a self-replacing flock, they're getting the benefit of the compounding genetic gain. So if they're consistently over the generations of their breeding, selecting those animals with the higher performance traits, then that's adding to the genetic profile of their own commercial flock. So, so you just get um, clients at different stages of their of their breeding programs and their enterprise. To what extent they then would chase or value those rams with the higher traits. And bearing in mind that all the rams that are offered are, are in the top 25 or 30 percent of of the national breed program, which is 67,000 individual mm. sheep measured each year. So, so they're all good sheep. It's just those guys that are hell-bent on doing the best they can do are prepared to invest in those top 5%ers or top 10%ers, whether they look at individual traits or whether they uh, – because we also have the maternal dollar index, which brings together on a sort of an economic weighting the major production traits. So there's, there's two ways blokes look at them. Our good sheep breeders are still very respectful of the confirmation and and the style of the sheep. So they still like to be able to – physically see the sheep and tick off their own criteria for, for the structural soundness and, and individual sort of physical traits that the sheep might have. So so most sheep buyers would you know, consider that as equally important, really. Tim, you mentioned a bit earlier that you're mainly a, a one-man show. You've got the support of your family, but what does the next generation on your stud look like? What does the future hold? I've got four children and my two daughters are either studying or employed in the health industry. Two sons, one's first year uni studying ag at Melbourne Uni and one's currently in year 11. And they both love the farm. The girls love the farm as well, of course. So, look, uh, for me, it's about enjoying the family farm and we involve everybody and everybody's involved and it's a very special part of it all our lives. Now, I'm working to give them opportunity to be involved somehow down the track, but at the end of the day, I'm prepared to accept that they will make their own choices, what they want to do professionally and where they want to live. So so that's still got a little bit of time to play out. But in the meantime, we're, we're a happy family farm and everybody's involved and they all love coming home and being part of it. And I suppose that the upside for us with the, with the, the boys have been home, doing home study and when they dropped their books, they've been out, out and about helping me. So, so it's given them some nice time at home as well. Yeah. Mentioning work boots, we do ask all our guests this similar question. What what work boots do you currently wear out on farm? Well, it depends. Depends what, what, what I might be up to. If it's a bit wet outside, I'm pretty good with the old the old otways or the or the bogs keep my feet dry. But there's always a pretty tired-looking pair of bluntstones out on the mat, or <laughs> if I've got someone I need to impress, I might put the RMs on. So. <laughs> A pair for all occasions. Yeah. Yeah. Well, today's been great, Tim. I've really enjoyed um, learning about what you do and, you know, the way that you've embraced opportunities and you're so open to change and looking at things a little differently. So thanks for chatting with us today. Oh, it's been a pleasure, Annie. Thank you very much for your interest in, in what we do. And you know, farming is a great enterprise. It's been through some very tough times, 
but it, it is when you bring in the whole factor that involves your family and it's not just your farm it's also your home and your community it's, it's a great industry to be in and it's been a great part of our lives so thank you thanks for listening this podcast is produced by rural bank rural bank supports the agribusiness community by providing financial services knowledge and leadership for australian farmers to grow if you'd like more information about the topics we've discussed today as well as links and other resources we've added those to the show notes for this episode you can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now and while you're there please leave us a five-star review it really helps other people find the show i'm annie herbert and i'm matt Hour, and we'll chat to you next time